Now, as I've been diving into the scriptures more and more, I'm starting to realize that often the places that we overlook or we skip in our Bible reading plan often have the richest um, understanding of what the scriptures are actually trying to tell us. And two of those areas are geography and genealogies. Like, you ever see like all these places and you're like, I have no idea what that's talking about. And you just kind of skip it. Or you start seeing a list of all these people and you're like, I don't know even how to pronounce that person, let alone that. But today we're going to look at the geography part of it. Um, So I want to give an example of why this is important. When you hear someone saying that they're moving to Hollywood, what do you assume? An acting career, right? Or a comedian or some form of the arts. Because what does Hollywood have in our common understanding? It's the movie industry. It's, what was that? The entertainment industry. Hollywood encompasses all that that industry is. So even you uh, see a flyover of the white letter Hollywood sign on the Hollywood Hills. You, all of these understandings and all of these thoughts and you come to mind just by the association with Hollywood. You assume that they're moving and we associate a specific place with a specific type of pursuit. Okay? We're going to dive into Jonah 1 and we're going to see that that same thing is happening in this passage. So, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. I'm going to pause. I didn't mention this last week. Jonah's name means dove. And son of Amittai means faithfulness. So, this is thick with irony. The dove of faithfulness is about to do what? Okay, saying, the Lord said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So pause. Last week, we were introduced to four of the main characters of the book of Jonah. We saw the, uh, the scriptures and how all of this is interconnected to the beauty of the word God gave us. We were introduced to Nineveh, that great city. The evil that rises up before the Lord that he then goes and does something about. We're introduced to Jonah, the prophet who had a specific understanding that he was supposed to act in a certain way. To intercede on behalf of the people. Even willing to offer himself for the sake of the people. And we'll find out what he does with that. And then we also see God, the one who ultimately is the pursuer of his enemies. So we looked at that in the first two verses. Now we're going to dive into verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah here is fleeing in the opposite direction of God's leading. Now, when we start to connect the rest of the Bible, we are going to see that Tarshish represents man's pursuit 
to develop the land of Eden apart from God's presence. And if that doesn't have something to say about what we do in our day, I don't know what does. So let's first look at Jonah is running to something while he's also running away from someone. So what is he running to? There's this, um, this is verse three in kind of diagram form. Uh, this is another translation that is more literal in its nature. But I just want you to look at this for a second and just notice what stands out. So you see the, the beauty. This is just verse three. Look at the beautiful structure in which this is. This is called a, a chiasm. This is very, very common in scripture. Like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Because notice how he went down to Joppa and he went down into it. Isn't that kind of redundant? He, Jonah arose to flee. And notice how Tarshish from before the face of Yahweh, to Tarshish from before the face of Yahweh is the brackets. See the beginning of the end of the passage. And Tarshish is mentioned three times. So when you see that much repeated words in the scriptures, we should always be asking ourselves, where have I seen this before? Why is the author trying to say Tarshish so much and the face of Yahweh or the face of the Lord? Why is that such a big deal? So what I want to do is for the next few minutes, I want to make a case in a way that we usually don't see Jonah. And it's the pursuit of Eden. And this is where geography comes in. Um, this is a map of the uh, Middle East. This is the extent of which the authors of Jonah and the scriptures would have understood a lot of the world. So you look up top on the upper right, you see Nineveh. That's along the Tigris River. You see that river coming down. You see about, you see Babylon there. That's along the Euphrates River. And then you see where like Sodom is right there. That's the Dead Sea. Just north of that is the Sea of Galilee. Where Mount Sinai is, that's the whole Sinai Peninsula. The Nile River, for anybody that remembers fourth grade geography, that's all of Egypt. And then the Red Sea, all right there. Now, why do I show this? Let me read to you what Genesis 2 talks about the land of Eden. It says this, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedalium and onyx stone are there. Verse 13. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So this is Genesis 2. We love Genesis 2 because we talk about how God breathed life into people. But we skip over the geography. Because where is all this stuff? So let me explain. The Pishon and the Havilah is south of Egypt. It's down over in this area, okay? So all the way south of Egypt, remember, there's a river flowing from the tree of life, and it's giving life to all of the world. Tree of life, river, 
all the world borders. Okay? Then you have uh, Gihon fuels Kush. Kush is Egypt. So if you ever see Kushites, that's a term for Egyptians. Tigris is up in the, is Nineveh. That is modern day Turkey. It leads into the Persian Gulf. Nineveh is on that river. Nineveh is modern day Mosul, Iraq. Just to give you some modern day geography. And the Euphrates is what Babylon is on. That also leads into the Persian River. Um, that is where uh, Baghdad, Iraq is. So Baghdad is about 50 miles south of Babylon. Okay? So what, what type of wealth is in this land? Gold. So you have borders that the scriptures is giving us around Eden. And it's starting to tell us the bounty or the beauty of what is there. Now let's fast forward in the text. Adam and Eve are cast out. They go east. Abraham is chosen from Ur, which is outside of these borders. And then he's sent back into the promised land. Fast forward even more. Moses gives the leadership to Israel to Joshua. Where did Joshua borders, where are they supposed to go to? All of this. That's all the promised land. But where does Joshua end up taking? Just a small section of it. So go and take the promised land, extend the borders. But Joshua does not do that. There's only two times in all of scripture where the borders of Israel match the borders of Eden. The first place is Solomon. This is super important. Follow with me just a few more minutes. It'll, it'll make sense. First Kings 4, 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, which is along the Mediterranean, to the border of Egypt. This is 10. We'll get there in a second. They brought tributes and served Solomon all the days. So borders is all of that land. Then what about the, the money? Where does the bounty come? Remember, gold is in Eden. There's borders and there's bounty. Where is the bounty coming from in Solomon's reign? And he guesses. First King 10, 22, it says this. For the king had a fleet of ships of where? Tarshish. Um, at the, at once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Why in the world are apes and peacocks in Solomon's reign? Because he's trying to rebuild Eden. He's got the borders. Now he needs the resources to fuel it in the same way. Where does he go to get the resources? Tarshish. Every three years, there's somebody going to this place that no one actually knows where it is, by the way. They go there, they get the gold, and then they come back. And, and Solomon, just uh, we're not going to dive into this text, but Solomon, it starts to describe how massive his bounty is, how powerful it is. He counts horsemen. He has chariots. He goes down to Egypt to get them. The king made silver so common in Jerusalem as stone. Just so you know, Jerusalem's on a mountain. To say that there's as much silver in Jerusalem as stone is saying a lot. Okay? 
And bounty, bounty, bounties. And it, you start to think, oh, Solomon's doing such a great job. Look at all this good stuff he has. He got horses, he's got silver, and he's got all these wives. And then Deuteronomy 17 should ring a bell. Because what does that say? Talking about the king. It says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. We look at what Solomon's doing as good, extending the borders, getting all this money. And what God told him to do is exactly not that. You're extending the borders, but don't go get all this bounty. This is not the way the king is supposed to work. So when do we see the borders extend to that same place again? There's a really random in 2 Kings 14. We were introduced to him last week. His name's Jeroboam II. Who is the prophet of Jeroboam II? Jonah, son of Amittai. So, under, the, under Jeroboam, borders are extended. What's he missing? He's missing the wealth. He's missing the money. He's missing the resources. So where do people go to resource their Eden projects? Goes to Tarshish. And so we show up here, Jonah chapter one, verse three, when it says, when we know Jonah was the prophet to the guy whose borders extended, and now you have him being told to go one direction, and instead he goes to Tarshish. It should be ringing in our brains. It's like he's going to Hollywood. He's going there for a specific type of pursuits. Jonah is going because he's trying to build an Eden-like world apart from the presence of God. This is a picture of people trusting in their own resources, whether it's horses like Solomon, gold, political marriage, political boundaries and borders, alliances, who they know, what they have. You know, we create false Edens when we think we can do something better than what God is leading us to. We create false Edens when we create our lives in an, and the world in a way that's different from God and his ways. What does it look like for us to do what Jonah is doing? To set up an Eden where we have our own borders and our own beautiful resources to create the world in our image, not the world in God's image. In order to do this, let me just take a few minutes to compare what the real Eden is to our pseudo attempts at leading our own Eden. So what is Eden like? Eden is a place of dependence. Our false Eden is a place of independence. So, if you go back to Eden and you look at the story, man and woman were absolutely dependent upon God. They were, they were breathed life into them from God himself. 
They uh, did not have the knowledge of good and evil. They were supposed to be dependent upon God to know what was right and wrong. Right? They, all the resources for their life and livelihood were in Eden. But they were also dependent upon one another. It's really interesting that God says all of creation is good, but there's one thing that's not good in creation. What was not good? That Adam was alone. It's not good for man to be alone. So he fashioned, he formed a bride for Adam. So they were dependent upon one another for even understanding what life as good is. Eden is a place of dependence, but we are false Edens. We try to create a world of independence where we don't need God and we don't need one another. Think about all the times when we try to create a world where it's like, ah, I, I don't want to ask that person for help. Because if I ask that person for help, then I'll be seen as needy. Right? We in our day and in our society, I, I, I honestly think this is one of the reasons why Jesus had so much to say about the wealthy. Because why is it hard for the wealthy to inherit the kingdom of God? Because there is a sense of no need for him. I've got this. I can pay the bills. I can take care of this. Other people are dependent upon me. I'm not saying that's bad. It's just harder. And the 1% in the world population makes over $35,000 a year. So just keep that in mind. I'm not, we're not talking about the gajillionaires here, okay? Oftentimes that's us. We think we can, we create a world that we don't need God. We don't need other people. Our suburban society has created fences and backyards because we don't want to interact with our neighbors. We've got this, we'll take care of it. We don't need you and we don't need God at all. I've got this. That's a false Eden. And we do it all the time. But Eden is not just that. Eden is a place of being fully seen and fully known. Our false Eden is a place of shame. Let me unpack that for a second. So how does the scriptures describe emotionally the perfect world? What is the first emotion described in the Bible? Unashamed. The best possible way to describe a perfect world is the lack of something that's so prevalent to us. So what were Adam and Eve like? They were naked and unashamed. They were fully known. They had nothing to hide. There was nothing to expose. It was just them fully known by God and fully known and seen by one another. Okay? Nakedness is not just a physical reality here. It was a relational reality. Sin is not just rebellion. Sin is separation in the Hebrew language. When what is separation? What does Adam and Eve do when they, when they sin and rebel against God? They hide. They cover themselves. And, and so God has to go and pursue them. That's the picture of shame. 
Shame is the story that says, uh, if these people know me, if they see me, understand what I think, understand what I feel, if they really knew what's going on in my brain, if I was fully seen and fully known, then there's no way that those people will accept me. So what do I do? I hide. I, I walk away from. I don't allow my world to be known by others. I hold it in. And I, I live in a place of shame. Where Eden, the invitation to Eden is not nakedness. That's not what I'm saying here, okay? But it's to be fully known. Where God can fully know you. Where you can be fully seen for who you are in the greatness of your humanity and in the brokenness of your humanity. And still be loved. But in our world, like, oh, I'm not going to be known like that. There's, there's so much fear around if people were able to do that. The, the one, actually, I'm going to ask us this question. Where do you see others or have experienced what Eden is really like, but created a false Eden in di to difference between the two? Where have you seen others create a false Eden? Careers? Careers? How, uh, how so? Yeah. Yeah, we can, instead of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we can love our careers with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So instead of pursuing God in the way that he calls us to, we pursue something else. Jobs are good. Adam and Eve had a job. Be fruitful, multiply. Tend and keep the garden. Right? I Name the animals. And so career is good. But when it becomes our ultimate and we love it more than we love God, we're creating a false Eden. It's good. What else? Well, let's go for it. Tell with the internet. <laughs> Unpack that. That's I. That did not cross my mind. I like it though. I mean, people make it look like their life is perfect. And yep. When it's really not. Yeah, we make our life seem perfect. So our false Eden is how we project ourselves to the world. Like I've got it all together. I. I. And really, it's we're hiding and we don't have it all together. So my Eden is being known a certain way by others rather than actually being what is in with real community and real people. We hide behind that. Oh, that's that's one. Not wonderful. That is a great example. Any others? I think similarly, you've got online communities. Yeah. You know, like groups of people online that relate to one another in uh -huh. this like hidden way. They're trying to create a utopian Eden like relationship that you're but you're hiding a lot of other stuff. Yeah, you you're creating an online pseudo Eden yeah. around a specific cause or a thing where it's not really all of you, it's maybe even part of you. Like it's a it's for a specific purpose and you're not really fully known, fully seen there. Yeah. 
There's a lot of ways we can go about this. A few more. We, Eden is God's power on display when false Eden is my power on display. Like Eden is like, look at what God created. And what is a false Eden? Look at what I created. I mean, this is the Tower of Babel over and over and over again. Instead of cries going up before the Lord, we put our pride going up before the Lord. What we create. Eden is a place where all are welcome to the table. I mean, the new garden, the new heaven, the new earth says every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship before God. They will all come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. I mean, tribe, ethnos, language. Um, False Edens are where it's only people like me, look like me, socioeconomic like me, um, even race like me. Um, Eden, but ultimately Eden is where God's presence is full. Where he is present. He walks in the cool of the day. But our false Edens are where we run from God. And this is what Jonah's doing. Jonah is not only running to Tarshish to fund his false Eden. While he's running to there, he's also running from God. Because notice what it says in, the, in verse 3 again. He rose to flee from the presence of Yahweh. And if you, go, if you remember that diagram or that chiasm I showed you earlier, the literal translation is that is he, he rose to flee from the face of Yahweh. From the face of Yahweh. It's hard for, to not see the author of Jonah have these, this understanding of face of Yahweh running through his brain as he's saying this. Because the face of Yahweh is used 16 times in the Hebrew Bible talking about the presence of God. It's in Cain, it's in Jacob, it's in Moses. But I want to read you two Psalms specifically. The first one is a Psalm of David. This is Psalm 27. If the face of God is the presence of God, Jonah is running away from the presence of God. Look at what Psalm 27 says. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. What is the invitation here that David is saying? That God has told him, seek my face. Seek my presence. Come to me. And David is responding, yes, that's what I want to do. I don't want you to hide your face from me. I don't want you to hide your presence. I want to be where you are. And then there's Psalm 139, which is just a ringing hyperlink in our brain. Because this is what Psalm 139 says. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Hmm, That sounds like Eden. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in from behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the pits, remember that next week, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, hmm, that should ring a bell with Jonah. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah likely knew these songs. The author knew these songs. Does Jonah think he can actually free from the presence of Yahweh? Is he like thinking, oh, I'm getting out of here to do this? We'll find that out more in chapter four. But how often do you recognize the face of Yahweh? How often do you recognize God's presence in your life? And if you were to imagine the face of God looking at you, what would be his expression? If you were to use your imagination and you would, and if you, because remember faces, I mean, it's a very intimate expression of being known, like face to face. So if you would imagine the face of God looking at you, what would be his expression? For many people, that's a terrifying thought. According to a recent study, 77% of people have a negative image of God. Now, this includes an angry God. This is one who's highly involved in our daily lives and worldly affairs. This God is quite angry, punishing those who are unfaithful or ungodly. So a picture of God that's angry and nitpicking every move you make is any moment you're unfaithful, he's ready to punish you if you are unfaithful. Maybe on the opposite end, you have a distant God, one who's not active in the world. He's not really angry at anything, but this is a God that is apathetic and disinterested. Just, eh, it's more of a deistic God. Yeah, you do you. Just do whatever you want. Not really involved. Just doesn't really care about you. Just there. Is that the face? Maybe, I'm, and this is, I've, I know this one well. When I've done this exercise in the past, my picture of God's face was actually, I couldn't see his face. I, I imagined um, him at a desk working and I was overlooking his shoulder. I didn't even see it having a face because he was too busy doing other stuff to actually tend to me. That's one way this could work. Maybe it's a critical God. This is a God who interacts with the world but gives off a general sense of displeasure. Like, ugh, why are you talking to me again? Like, have you ever uh, tried to talk to somebody and they clearly don't want to talk to you? Like, a thousand other things are running through their mind? Is that how you view the face of God looking at you? Like, oh, here's this person again. I got a whole world to deal with. What do they want now? Just displeasure. And does this line up with how God describes himself? Because how does God describe himself? Exodus 34, the most quoted verse in all the Bible, says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What does God do with sin? Well, he recognizes it for those who are guilty. But notice, how many generations does he do that for? Three or four. How long does God's generous love last? It actually is thousands of generations. The thousands is not a number for people. It's a number of generations. So for those who have had their sins and transgressions and iniquity forgiven, those who have experienced the mercy and grace of God, those who God expresses abounding chesed or steadfast love and faithfulness, for those of us who have experienced that, we get the face of God who is merciful and gracious, who's slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the God who revealed himself to his people and who, because you are in Christ, now looks at you the same way. When you think of, because the idea of God knowing where I am and everything I'm doing, if that God is angry, distant, or critical, I don't want that God knowing what I'm like. I'm gonna run in the other direction. I'm going to flee to Tarshish. I'm going to create my false Eden. Because if a God is angry, distant, or critical like that, I don't want him creating my world. That sounds awful. No thank you. But if we have a right picture of God, who is gracious and merciful, then I have no problem him knowing and fully seeing. Setting up my world in the way that he desires it. For me to not feel the need to pursue a false Eden. Because I have a picture of what the God who creates the true Eden is like. And I can allow that to be my world. Not a false Eden. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then... When he returns and he renews and restores all things, but then face to face. Now I know in part, I just got a glimpse of it right now. Then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. This God who created the world in a certain way that we rebel against because of our sins, iniquities, and transgressions that we run to Tarshish to fund our own Eden projects. He is the one who is what? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger. How has he expressed that? And how can I know that one day I will see the face, I will be face to face with the gracious, merciful, compassionate God? How can I know that? It's because of what Christ has done on our behalf.
My sins, iniquities, and transgressions are forgiven in Christ. So no longer am I the one who has my guilt being visited over and over and over again. Because my guilt has been dealt with on the cross. He paid the penalty for my sins. He has forgiven me. So now I can be the recipient of that steadfast love for thousands and thousands of generations. And that's the offer of what the gospel brings you. The the gospel allows us to not pursue false Edens. It empowers us because we now are in the presence of a God who is merciful and gracious. So where are you tempted to build a false Eden? How can the the bread and the wine of communion come to you and as you take it remind you, I really don't want to be fully seen and known, but Jesus, you fully see me and know me and accept me because of the cross and your resurrection. Now it's help me learn to be fully seen and fully known. I don't need to run away from your Eden. I can live in your Eden now. How do you regularly experience God's presence? How are you allowing in your life, in a day-to-day, moment-by-moment, as a disciple of Jesus, allowing his presence that you can't flee anyways, how are you letting that fill all of your life? Or do you feel like you need to run away from it? You, you do your religious duties by checking off the box, but all of the other part of your life is up to you. And I encourage you, as we sing in a few minutes, imagine the face of God looking at you. What is, what is that expression on his face? Is it one that aligns with how he's described himself? Or are you running away from the true presence of God to a God that actually is a false God. All of this is with, uh, within our grasp, if you will, because Jesus, who has been God from eternity past, left that and came to us, pursued us, and brought himself within our grasp. We can be fully accepted, fully known, fully loved within God's kingdom, him as king, because of what Jesus did on the cross. His body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sin. If adoption as sons, as J.I. Packer says, is the crown jewel of our faith. What Jesus did is absolutely necessary to give us access to being adopted as children. We don't get the glory of seeing God face to face without Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sin. We don't get the promise of one day seeing him face to face in a world without sin, shame, brokenness, death, Unless we go to the table recognizing that we are in need of Christ. We need to be reminded that we do perceive, uh, pursue false Edens. We do run away from the presence of God. But this is a going back to his presence weekly over and over again. 
reminding us of our need for him.